Morning, saints. Let's pray. Father, from the earliest days of human history, man has sought to have a soul at rest. We have been in turmoil because of our separation from you due to our sin and rebellion. We praise you, Father, that from the earliest moments after that initial rebellion, you promised that you would make all things right. We thank you that you've done that in the Lord Jesus Christ so that those among us who have turned from their sin and trusted in Christ alone, we can truly say that it is well with our souls. And Father, there, there may be among us those who have been made right with you, who have been reconciled to you as Father, are troubled today, feeling some sense of insecurity, feeling precarious even in their relationship with you, Father, would you make it the case that your Holy Spirit would minister to those people, to us, that by the preaching of the gospel you would remind us of the great eternal security that we have because Christ has said it is finished. Thank you for your word, and we pray that your spirit would minister it to us in these coming moments. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Find your place there if you would stand with me. We're going to read verses 20 through 28. Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 20. Speaking of the Lord's Melchizedekian priesthood, the author writes, And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You may be seated. I got a text from my oldest daughter early this week. Hey, have you seen such and such movie? My answer was no. She says, it's terrifying. I'm watching it right now. A few minutes later, she texted and said, this movie is horrible. I totally regret this. The next next day, I talked to her on the phone and And she said, that was the scariest movie I have ever seen. I hardly slept at all. Will you please watch it? (laughs) And will you you call me when you're done watching it so that we can talk about it? Later in the week, she she was actually in town. And the first thing she wanted to know is, have you watched that movie yet? No, I haven't watched the movie yet. So we actually, we ended up watching it together. And I, I wondered later, why do we enjoy this? Why, why is this a pleasurable thing? Because she's somewhat miserable. I'm slightly less miserable. And some might surmise that, that, well, we just like the feeling of anxiety. That actually is not true. That, that is not true of, of me. Even though I've said it, I, I really like to be scared. I've told people that. That's actually not true. Like in my house, when I go to bed at night, I, I don't have a sign posted in my yard, Doors unlocked. I'm asleep upstairs, unsuspecting and vulnerable. I don't, I don't do that. In fact, I love knowing that I have a Doberman Pinscher living in my house who thinks I hung the moon. We, 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 we don't like insecurity. We, we actually all crave security. Crave literal, physical security. We, we, we crave relational security. We, we crave job security. We've got, we've got men's reveille coming up on Saturday. It's not unusual to have a man share that he, he may lose his job or he's just lost his job. Never is that given as a praise. You, you never hear a man say something like, well, I, I heard this week that, that, I, that I could lose my job. If you would all please pray that my boss will string me along for at least a couple of months because this precarious uncertainty is just glorious. That never happens. We, ne- we never have, have people giving as a praise. I was just diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, and Lord willing, I, I, I'll, I'll get sick this week because, because that would just kick up the adrenaline even more, and I'm loving every minute of it. We hate that kind of thing. We want security. We, we, we don't get a charge out of not knowing what's going to happen. We don't get a charge out of, out of potential danger, whether it's in our relationships or our job. We, we want to know that not only are our spouses faithful to us, but they're crazy about us. We, we want to know that, that, that our jobs are absolutely secure. We want to know that our retirement is squared away. We want to feel safe. We want to feel secure in a world full of trouble and what-ifs. That desire is what moves the original recipients of this letter. They, they are unsafe in a number of senses. They are experiencing trouble and persecution because of their having followed the Lord Jesus Christ. And the desire to feel secure is so strong in them 
that they're trying to find a way out of this trouble. And one option, it appears, that they're, that they're thinking about is not following Jesus anymore. Going back to Judaism because it would feel safer then. The world wouldn't hate them the way that it, that it, that it currently does. The author is aware of, of this. He awares that the readers are, he's aware that the readers are struggling in, in these ways. And now he's making a multifaceted argument that turning from Jesus is actually the least safe thing that you could possibly do. It will lead to eternal trouble. And, and the passage that we've just read demonstrates the author showing just how secure salvation is in Christ. We may have trouble in this life, but because of what Jesus has done, we can trust God, we can rest in Christ, and we can enjoy fellowship with the Godhead, all because of the overwhelming sufficiency of Christ and His role as our great high priest. Jesus is the only source of true security in this world. So don't walk away from Him, the author is arguing. Don't walk away from Him. Trust Him. Cling to Jesus. In particular, he's showing how Jesus is superior to the reader's alternative, which is the old Levitical priesthood. So he's saying over and over, Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And here, Jesus is better because Jesus is the only source of security. He's giving us reasons to believe that that's the case. And the first of those reasons is that Jesus is the better guarantee of a better covenant. That sounds fantastic in a world of uncertainty. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. Look look with me again at, at verse 20 and following. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Back in chapter 6, the author noted that God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis was made with an oath. And the significance was that God doesn't need to make oaths. God doesn't need to pinky swear on anything that He has said because God can't lie. He always does what He says. But, the author argues, he swore an oath to Abraham in Genesis 22 so that Abraham would be all the more secure in the knowledge that what God promised, he was going to fulfill. And so so Abraham was was enjoying not just a promise, but an oath-guaranteed promise made by a God who cannot lie. And so Abraham could know that God was going to make him the father of many nations. He could know that God was going to bless all the nations through him, and he could know that God was going to bring him into the land of promise. Now, having taught us all of that about oaths back in chapter 6, now the author is is applying it to this oath that God made to Jesus in Psalm 110.4, which reads, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Levitical priests, they were made priests with, with no such oath. And, and that's not to say that, well, now God can, can make a promise to the Levitical priest. He doesn't have to keep it because there's no oath. No, the point is that God never swore to any one of them that, that they would be eternal 
priests. The Levitical priesthood was, was never backed, so to speak, by an unconditional promise from God saying, look, you, individual, you are going to be a priest forever. There was never a promise to the people of God in the Old Testament. You are always going to be able to draw near to me through the ministry of, of the Levites. That, that was never said in the, in the Old Testament. But with Jesus, the Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You are a priest forever. Now, why does that matter? Well, the author draws this conclusion. The fact that Jesus was made a priest with an oath makes Jesus the guarantee or guarantor of a better covenant. And when we talk about a guarantee of a covenant, this is very similar to the earnest money that we put down when we make a large purchase. Like When you buy a house or you buy commercial real estate, whatever it is, you put down money, earnest money. And, and that money means that, that, that you are going to follow through with this, with this purchase because if you walk away from the deal, you're going to lose that earnest money the same idea here. God by oath has given Jesus, has given Jesus as the guarantee of a new covenant. And remember, what, what component of the new covenant is still outstanding right now? What part of it don't we have? We, we, we have the Holy Spirit. We, we have new hearts that want to obey God. What, what piece of the new covenant is still outstanding? It's our being brought into the new heaven and new earth with Christ reigning as King in our midst. That's what we don't yet have. And that's a big piece. And the the author is saying that that God has given Jesus as the guarantee or earnest money on on that promise. Now, in what sense did did God give Jesus as the guarantee? Well, he He gave us that guarantee through the incarnation of the eternal Son. So the Father, God, He is so serious about keeping this promise that He made in the Old Testament, this promise of a a new covenant. He's so serious about this that He gave the eternal Son, not not just giving Him, but but giving Him to become a man, that, that that the Son, the eternal Son, would put on human flesh, which, by the way, is an eternal thing. Jesus is a man forever. This incarnation of Jesus Christ, it includes all of Jesus' Successful navigation of temptation, which the author of Hebrews described as his being tested in every way as we are yet without sin. The incarnation of Jesus Christ includes the Lord's Lord's being rejected by his own people, including his closest family members. It includes his suffering in the last hours of his life, not not just the physical pain of, of beatings and dehydration and death by asphyxiation on the cross. Of course, all of that absolutely horrific, but the far worse pain is included in His incarnation, the far worse pain of this sinless lamb with a spotless conscience becoming sin and therefore being separated from His Father. God has made a significant investment of precious capital in guaranteeing the promise that He's made. So for God to change His mind, on this new covenant, which Psalm 110 says he, he will not do. And Numbers 23, 19 says he cannot do. But for God to do it, for God to change his mind, would be to put Christ through the incarnation and all that it meant to do that for nothing. It would be to put down the, the, greatest, the, the greatest down payment of 
earnest money imaginable, and then to just walk away. And notice that this oath-guaranteed promise in Psalm 110.4, this actually is not a promise to us. This oath is not a promise to us, but rather it's a promise to the Son. He says to the Son, I promise and I will not change my mind. Son, you are a priest forever. Of course, as, we, as we've revisited over and over in recent weeks, God, God can't lie, can't change His mind, can't break a promise. He loves His Son and He has sworn to His Son that He will be a priest forever. Now, why should you and I care about this? If this is an oath made to the Son and not an oath made to us, what, what does this mean for, for our lives? Well, let me explain this to you in two pieces, okay? First of all, our salvation rests upon the priesthood of Christ. If Christ is not a forever priest, we are not saved. Christ offered Himself as a sacrifice for our sin, and now He ever lives to intercede for us, which we'll get into a bit more in a few minutes. But if His priesthood goes away, so also does our salvation. So our salvation rests upon Christ's priesthood. The second piece of this is that His priesthood rests upon an oath-guaranteed promise from a God who cannot lie. God has promised to Jesus, look, your, your priesthood, it is never going away. And what that means for you and I is our salvation never going away. And so on the daily, what that means is that I can trust God in Christ with my soul. As all of the sea billows roll, I can truly say it is well with my soul. This priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ, it can be counted on. God is not going to change His mind. He's, God is not going to say one of these days, you know what, I think we'll discontinue your priesthood, Jesus. I think we'll, we'll, we'll do away with this. And, and, and therefore, we'll, we'll dis, do away with the salvation of those for whom you, you gave your all. No. He's promised Jesus that will not happen. So, so, so if there is such a thing as a perfect polar opposite of precariousness, whatever that is, that's my standing with God. That's your standing with God if you have tr- turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. Precariousness now, that's precisely what you get in every other religion, most notably Islam. You, you can do all the right things in Islam, and in the end, you just don't know what Allah is going to do with you. You just don't know. A close second to Islam, I would put as secular humanism, which rests on the minds and inclinations of men. If you bank on human reason to make you right with God, eternally secure, you might as well bank on the wind not changing directions in the next month. All other hopes are the definition of precariousness because they are not founded on anything. Our hope is founded on the guarantee of a better covenant, which is Jesus Christ. And His priesthood is ensured by the oath of an almighty God who absolutely cannot lie. This is the only sure thing. And so we can trust God in Christ. Trust Him with everything. Jesus is the guarantee of a better covenant. Second, second reason to believe that That Jesus is our security. That He is better than anything else we might put our hope in. Jesus is able to save forever and completely. 
Jesus is able to save forever and completely. Verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priest permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, not only was the former priesthood not established by oath, but it was, it was populated exclusively by people who die. I mean, th- th- there are a ton of Levitical high priests over the, centu- over the centuries because their deaths required them to be replaced over and over and over. And, and this, this is worth revisiting. Why did all those priests die? Because of sin. Sin inherited from Adam. Sin in which those high priests participated by both inheritance from Adam and the choice of their own hearts. Those priests, they died because like everyone around them, they earned death. Now now think about that and then think about Jesus and how different He is. Jesus remains forever. We considered last time that Jesus did die, but there are crucial distinctions between Jesus' death and all other deaths, including those of the Levitical high priests. Jesus' death was not due to His own sin, but He stood in the place of countless others. He he took the penalty for sin that they committed. Further, Jesus' death is distinct in that He rose from the dead, never to die again. Indicating that, that while He took the sin and death of a multitude, He conquered that sin and death of a multitude. Jesus remains a priest forever because He never dies. And because He never dies, He never needs to be replaced. And there there are, are particular implications noted by the author here. As a result of His forever priesthood, He is able to save to the uttermost. And what, what that means is that Jesus is able to save forever and completely those who draw near to God through Him. Now, th- this uttermost salvation is a function of Jesus' constant intercession for those who've trusted in Him. That is, it's His constant prayer on their behalf. Now, now how, how exactly does, does that work? When, when we think about what Jesus prays for us, we, we, we might think first of prayers for endurance of difficulty, and that certainly would seem to fit the context of this book of Hebrews. The author has made much of, of Jesus' availability to help us in our times of need. And, and further, the author has characterized salvation as something that we, that we would refer to as an already not yet reality. We are already saved in one sense. He, he describes believers as those who, who currently have a share in Christ. We currently have life in Jesus. The author also indicates that in a different sense, we are not yet saved. And that sense is that we have not yet entered God's eternal rest. And to enter God's eternal rest, we must persevere in faith. We must endure this life, continuing to trust in Jesus. So it's likely the case that a way that Jesus saves us to the uttermost is praying for our faith, praying for our endurance. 
When I think about that, I'm reminded of John 17, the great, the great high priestly prayer that's recorded in Scripture, where just before Jesus going to the cross, He prayed things like this for us. This is John 17, 11. Holy Father, keep them in Your name. You know, that's a prayer for the Father to keep us in the faith. Holy Father, keep them in Your name. Verses 15-17 in that same chapter, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. In verse 24, Jesus prayed for us, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. John 17 should be precious to us, not simply because it was prayed for us prior to Christ's death, but because this is the kind of thing that Jesus prays for us even now. That He's praying for our endurance, our perseverance in the faith, that we would cross the finish line of faith and enter God's rest eternally. The Apostle Paul indicates that that he believes in this kind of prayer too. Pastor Pastor Rick read for us from Romans chapter 8 earlier this morning. And there Paul teaches, listen, Paul teaches there that because Jesus intercedes for us, because Jesus prays for us, we have no need to fear condemnation. We have no need to fear tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. None of those things. All because Christ is at the right hand of the Father, even now, interceding for us. If you would, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. There's Zechariah the prophet. He's, he's given a vision of the high priest at the time. The high priest at the time, his name is Joshua. And Joshua is standing before the angel of the Lord. And something amazing happens here that we're given a picture of. And I believe that the New Testament authors pick up this picture in many of the things that they say. I believe that Paul is picking this up as he's mentioning Jesus praying for us in Romans chapter 8. And I believe John the Apostle is picking this up as he's teaching what he teaches in First John chapter 2. Listen to Zechariah 3, beginning in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? He's talking about Joshua. Is not Joshua a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. It's clear from from, from this vision that, that, that Joshua is a sinner. That's what's depicted by these filthy garments that he's wearing. But he was acquitted by God because God clothed him with righteousness, not his own. And and, and so when Paul asks the question in Romans chapter 8, who shall condemn us? The, The understood answer is no one because Christ is 
there at the right hand of God. Christ is the one interceding for us that we would be acquitted on the account of His righteousness credited to us. And we, we would think also then of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, which reads this way. My little children, I'm writing to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And an advocate is something like a defense attorney. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen, if you find yourself under arrest in this world, charged with a crime, the chances of a, of a, of a guilty verdict, even in a legal system as, as good as ours, has much to do with the quality of your legal counsel. And that's why we find many, many people, and they find themselves in, in legal trouble, not accepting that, that, free, that free public defender that the, the government gives to them, but rather selling their house, raiding their, 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 their retirement fund in order to, to hire the top dog guy to, to come and, and plead for them. You, you, you want the seasoned attorney. You, you want the guy that you have to sell everything for to get him to argue for you. There is no one better to argue for your eternal acquittal than Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because He has, he has an unbeatable argument. I mean, if, if you have been joined to Jesus Christ, having repented of your sin and trusted in Him, your penalty has already been paid for. And so Jesus, our advocate stands there eternally at the right hand of the Father, going through all of the evidence. Exhibit A, the nail scars in His hands. Exhibit B, the wound in His side. Exhibit C, the empty tomb. Exhibit D, His indestructible life. Exhibit E, His current enthronement at the Father's right hand. Exhibit F, that in, all, in light of all of these things, the Holy Judge calls you son, calls you daughter. And Exhibit G, you call that judge Father. And, and, and he could go on and on with, with his evidence. But you want Jesus arguing your case. Because it's on the basis of his intercession that we can say and believe and live in light of this truth. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of us may have an erroneous idea of, of, of Jesus occupation and preoccupation in these days of His ascension. You may picture Him as like cosmically retired. Jesus has not retired. He lives to make intercession for you. Now, what does that mean for for my life? What does that mean for your life? It means that we can rest in the priesthood of Christ. Rest in a different sense than the rest that he talked about in chapters 3 and 4. That eternal rest when we're in his presence glorifying him forever. But we can rest now in the sense that we don't have to strive to earn God's pleasure. This is a priesthood that never ceases to plead for us. Never ceases to argue the truth that we 
are pleasing to God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross and resurrection. And if I, if, if we, if we think about what Christ is praying, we will rest in our acquittal. We will rest in our adoption by this great judge who's now our father. We, we will not have any kind of preoccupation with sin from our past. Even though the devil, he never tires of accusing us of those sins. We don't have to be preoccupied with that because Jesus is on the case. No despondency about when we sin now because we can repent and seek forgiveness. That will be given due to Christ's current intercession for us. No fretting over the weakness of our faith, the constancy of our tribulations, the pain of our persecutions, the threats of enemies, physical and spiritual, because Jesus, the risen one, is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Robert Murray Machane wrote this once upon a time. He said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And I would suggest to you that though you cannot hear Christ praying with your ears, you can read His prayer for you in John 17. And His intercession means this glorious thing. He saves you to the uttermost. Jesus is able to save forever and completely. A third reason that the the author wants us to believe that there is security in this great high priest, that is that Jesus brings definitive atonement. Jesus brings definitive atonement. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So look there again in verse 26. He gives several descriptors of Jesus, beginning with the word holy. Now, this is not the typical word in the New Testament for holy. It's a close synonym, but it carries the idea of faithful to covenant obligations. Jesus is faithful to covenant obligations. Now, we might immediately think, oh, that's fantastic. That means He's going to keep His promise to us. That's completely true, but what's in mind here is Jesus keeping the Mosaic covenant on our behalf. The Mosaic covenant with with Yahweh. The covenant that that, that God promised, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And this is how you'll display this, is that you will love me with all of your heart, soul, and mind. And that will be demonstrated in your obedience to me. Jesus kept that covenant where no one else did. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. Obeyed it flawlessly. And so, Jesus was innocent, the author says. He's innocent. He never once disobeyed. Jesus said to those who hated Him, those who wanted to kill Him, those who had every incentive to find something wrong that He'd done, He said to them in John eight forty six, Which one of you convicts me of sin? Of course, no one could because He was innocent. And so He was then unstained. Because he was completely innocent, 
No sin ever sullied the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to the cross, He never experienced what's so common to all of us as fallen human beings. He never experienced guilt. Can you imagine that? Jesus lived His entire life on this earth up to that moment of the cross. Never knew what it's like to feel guilt. Never never felt the weight of conviction. Never felt a hint of the displeasure of God because of a wrong thought, a wrong action, a wrong attitude. None of that. He was absolutely pure. And so he was, as the author says here, separated from sinners. Not, not in the sense that he was physically removed from them. We know that's not the case. But Jesus was surrounded by sinners. His, his life was lived in a sea of sinners and sinfulness. But he was removed in that he was of a class completely of his own. Faithful to the covenant, innocent, unstained. He was utterly unique in his status as a human being. All other high priests were unfaithful covenant obligations. They were guilty. They were stained. They were perfectly at home in the darkness. And so, even as they were tasked with bringing offerings for the sins of others, the first item on their list was to bring an offering for their own sin because they were tainted just like everyone else. And they had to make offerings for themselves and the people over and over and over, and that's because their offerings couldn't make anyone faithful. Their offers couldn't remove guilt. Their offerings couldn't separate from sin. They couldn't do that for themselves, and so they certainly couldn't do that for anyone else. The law of Moses appoints men in their weakness, it appoints them in their sinful frailty. They could save no one. But then there is the word of the oath. Promised in, in Psalm 110.4, appointing a son made perfect forever. And when the Scriptures talk about Jesus being made perfect, we, we've already talked about this in, in, in previous weeks, we know that it's not that Jesus became perfect, but that He was proven perfect through unrelenting obedience in the midst of unrelenting temptation up to and including His death. And so Jesus... Because He was holy, innocent, unstained, and separate from sinners, He had no need to offer sacrifice for Himself because there was nothing for which He needed atonement. And He never needed nor will need to offer sacrifices over and over again because the one sacrifice of Himself did the job. You see, Jesus' innocence, His moral perfection, His purity, His separation from sin qualified Him to be the perfect atoning sacrifice for sinners. First John chapter 1 that I read from a, a moment ago earlier said that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. That means that our sins were imputed to Him. They were credited to His account as if He had done them. And by His death, He then satisfied the wrath of God earned by those acts of rebellion. All of that is what it means for Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. He took our sins and He took the wrath that came with them and extinguished all of it. He was, Jesus was, was like a, a perfectly white canvas. 
and when the sins of all of his people were imputed to him, his perfection made the sinfulness of those sins to be seen for all their filthiness. No dirt, mud, muck. It just doesn't show up against clothes that are, that are dark and black. But dirt, mud, muck is, is never so clearly seen as on a perfectly white garment. And so, with our sin imputed to Him, Jesus became the perfect vehicle for demonstrating the sinfulness of sin. And He was then the perfect man in whom to demonstrate the lethality and rightness of God's wrath. Because sin imputed to Jesus, it was so filthy in light of His his moral perfection, so filthy that though He deserved no wrath, wrath was the only fitting response to the filthiness of that sin. Only omnipotent wrath could bring justice to that, that, that blanket of rebellion worn by Christ on the cross. Because of all of this, only Jesus could adequately display the character of grace. The, the one who deserved it not bore all the wrath of God so that by faith you would bear none. And so that you would be like Him, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. The Levitical priesthood offered countless sacrifices. Jesus offered one because one was all it took because He Himself was the sacrifice. Now, what does that mean for us? What, what, what difference does that make in, in the day-to-day as we are, we, we are beset with troubles and, and the sea billows are, are rolling? What does that mean to us? It means that we can enjoy God in Christ knowing that our sins have been completely covered. I, I, don't, I don't have to, to wonder about my standing with God. You don't have to think about atonement for sin the way that you think about taxes. You know, taxes, they're just never really paid, right? I mean, the government's going to be taking your money after you die. They're never paid. You can never be done. Atonement for sin, not that way. One and done. I never have to ask myself over and over until my dying day and beyond, do I need to make another sacrifice? Am I still okay with God? As the previous previous sacrifice, has it run out of its potency? Do I need to supplement what Jesus did? No. No. Because Jesus Himself said, it is finished. And and, and that means I'm free to enjoy God, which is what I was created to do. And you are free. If you've turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, you are free to enjoy God, which is what you were created to do. You, you, You can approach Him through Christ in the Word expecting as you read His Word to find good things, delightful things, because you've been fully reconciled to the author 
And, and you can expect all the power of the Holy Spirit working to conform your desires to coincide with His. And, and you could pray with expectation because your requests are not brought on the basis of your record, but on the basis of Christ's record credited to your account. You, you can rejoice that your struggle with sin is empowered by a Holy Spirit. Your, your failures in sin, they're drowned by the blood of Christ's righteousness. Your growth in likeness to Christ is received by God as a pleasing, living sacrifice. Jesus brings definitive atonement, once and for all satisfaction of the penalty for your sin. And that means that you can enjoy God. The author writes there in verse 26, It was fitting that we should have such a high priest. It is a biblical way of saying Jesus was just the kind of priest that we needed. We needed this. We needed Him to do what He did. We needed Him to provide this eternal security for us so that we can trust God in Christ and we can, we can rest in Christ and we can enjoy the Godhead because of who Christ is and what Christ has done. Now there may be uncertainty all around us. Uncertainty about our retirements. Uncertainty about family relationships. Uncertainty about the changing winds of, of, of global politics. Uncertainty about all of those things. The believer in Jesus Christ need not have any uncertainty about eternity because Christ has secured it through His person and work. And that is why we must not turn away from Him. Jesus is better. He is your rest. He is your security. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You're a God who cannot lie. And out of Your love for us, You made an oath to the Son that His priest would remain forever. We pray, Father, that You would work into our minds and hearts the eternal significance of that oath. That, that we can trust You. We can rest in Christ. We can enjoy You as Father and Christ as Brother and Spirit as Helper eternally. We praise You that these things are true. Now, Father, many of us have, have, have different ways of, of applying these things today because we, we are beset with troubles, all kinds of troubles. And we, we may be tempted to allow the uncertainty of circumstances around us, Father, to dictate what we believe about eternity. To, to dictate what we believe about the present. We pray, Father, that in the coming minutes, as we observe a moment of silence, that you would speak to each one of us and tell us what these things mean for our current circumstances and why security in Christ means everything is going to be okay. Though the storm rages around us, we are secure in Christ. 
Would you do that for us in these coming moments, Father? Would you please minister to us by your Holy Spirit? We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus.